chapter 2, Acts 2, and uh, just taking a wee break from uh, uh, Revelation, and um, just to look at uh, some reminders for us in the second chapter of Acts in terms of the blueprint for the church, the church's worship and life. Last week we looked at how the church worshipped in response to the great outpouring of the Spirit of God on the day of Pentecost. And we saw that, uh, well, not in spite of, but I think because of the pouring out of the Spirit of God, the people's attention was turned to the Bible. Now that just makes sense, doesn't it? If the Bible had been given for 1,500 years, inspired by the Spirit of God, fulfilled by Jesus, uh, spoken by Jesus, then one of the first acts of the Holy Spirit would be to turn the people's attention to the Word of God again, and consistently and constantly. That is a, a uh, clear sign that something has taken place in you and I. Not only at a, a church level, but at a very personal level. What is my attitude to the Bible? Is my attitude to the Bible that of the early church? Because it's, what it's saying is, as it was then, so it is today. This is what a believer looks like. And so the, even going back into the Old Testament, Psalm 119, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. It was the same for the, 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 the psalmist, wasn't it? Uh, we remember last uh, uh, Lord's Day evening, Jack was talking about uh, the, the rediscovery of the book of Deuteronomy in the ministry of Josiah, in the kingship of Josiah. And it says Josiah's heart was tender and they trembled when the word of God was read. And so we expect then, when the Spirit of God comes in fullness, that the people will be drawn deep, more deeply into the Bible rather than away from it. Not using the fullness of the Spirit as an excuse to uh, move beyond the Bible to my own personal experience. Saying, as, as often we hear, God is telling me this, God is telling me that, or I feel this, or I think that. But rather, going to the Word of God. Now, please don't get me wrong. Your hand up and say, but doesn't God speak to us? Yes, He does. And God can give us direct impressions upon our spirit through His Word. And God indeed does speak to us. Uh, but this is how the New Testament church formed itself. And it's a wonderful thing to be able to have this window into the early hours of the, 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 the blossoming church. What it looked like. And, uh, of course, as I said, it is a template for us in moving forward. I mean, these are the things that we find in our own worship services today. And that is uh, on purpose. Because we are a Reformation church. The Reformation churches went back to the New Testament and said, what does the New Testament say about what we should believe, how we should worship God? And so whatever was not of the Word was uh, 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 
dispensed with, and there was this rediscovery of New Testament worship. And so what we find here in uh, Acts 2 is that pattern. Let's read it together. The last section, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing all the proceeds to all, uh, distributing proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, attending the temple, together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with gladness and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. When the New Testament talks about the fruit of the Spirit of God, that is very much true in the early stages of the church. If the church is under the power and influence of the Spirit of God, then the, the, the uh, fruit of the Spirit that Paul talks about in Galatians 5 uh, is then to be uh, expected, is it not? Uh, Paul says there in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are the things that are being seen now in the early church. Jesus said when he left that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. What do we think of when we think of Jesus saying you shall receive power? Well, we, we think of what he talked about of, be, of bearing witness to him, of testifying to him, of evangelizing, these sorts of things. Well, that's, that's true in part. But when we think of what it means for the Spirit of God to come in power, we can think of also of Paul's letter to the Colossians. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. We can think of that kind of power that Jesus will send upon his church. And uh, as Tim was reminding us in his prayer, that the, the, the conduct of our, our lives would be a witness to the people around us, be a witness to the world, that there is a contentedness with us, there's a joy in, in us. And so these things require nothing less than the power of God. And that is so true of what we see in Acts chapter 2, the coming of God in power upon his church, not only to... Uh, bear witness, but to live in a new, at a new level, in a new way that the world has never seen before. Look at how they love one another. That was one of the testimonies of the early church, from the outside watching world. Look at that. In other words, it made the world stand up and take notice. Look at what they are doing. And so they were uh, filled with power. And so all of these things that Luke goes on to describe here, their charity work, their unity, their fear of God, their passion now to evangelize, are all a result of this promise of the Holy Spirit coming upon them. And that, as I said, is not unique 
to the early church. We are a New Testament church. That doesn't mean that Pentecost happens again and again and again and again. But it does mean that the fullness of the Spirit of God is shared by all of God's people all over the world. And that the marks that were there in the early church ought to be characteristic of us today. So what were these things that described them? He says in uh, verse 43, And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Awe came upon every soul. Of course, the, the implication is that through the work of the apostles, through the extended work that Jesus was carrying on with, with miracles, testifying to the word, the people were awestruck of the wonderful things God was doing. They were stricken with awe, but we know that it was more than simply watching the miracles. It was hearing the word. Notice verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They were filled with awe. They were filled with awe at the purposes of God. Peter, on that first Pentecost sermon, recounted all the ways in which Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament prophets and laws. But through his death and resurrection, Peter was laying out a roadmap of how Jesus was going to live and die and rise again and, and usher in the kingdom of God. And when the people realized that Jesus died for sinners, they were cut to the heart. And they said, what shall we do? And so, there was this sense of awe that came upon the people. And this is a, 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 an incredible thing because our sense of awe does not simply come from miraculous works. We don't live in that kind of age anymore. But awe ought to capture our hearts nonetheless every time we hear or read the Word. I wonder, is that the way it is with you? Friends, this is not to be something relegated to a former time. This sense of awe and joy and excitement. That that, the, the, the wonder of God's Word ought to grip us. And say, oh, the depths of the wisdom of both the wisdom, the depths of the riches of both the wisdom and knowledge of God. To have that sense within us of God's awesome love, of God's holiness, that God was so holy he had to put his own son on the cross to satisfy his justice. And we look at that and say, how awesome is God? How, how holy is God? And we are filled with a sense of awe. And then we consider the love that drew salvation's plan. And we again say, how awesome is our God. This is what the apostles were, the disciples were doing. This is why they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Because awe had come upon them. And so they, they worshipped God. In Acts 5, it says, Great fear came upon all the church and upon as many as heard these things. This is what the, we call the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord was ramped up to a level that they never experienced before. And by fear, I don't mean 
running off and hiding in a cupboard somewhere because you're afraid of God. I'm talking about the fear of God which says, I take God at His Word as He is revealed in the Word of God. To fear God means to accept everything about Him. Not only His holiness, but His grace, His love. If you absorb those things, if you, if you affirm those things, you are a fearer of God. You fear the Lord in a positive, wonderful, healthy way. And this is what, what we ought to expect each time we hear God's Word. A sense of awe. And hopefully we've been seeing that as we've been going through the book of Revelation. To see as those seals are opened, as those trumpets are sounded, as judgments are unleashed upon the earth, as the gospel is going out, and as people are delivered out of the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of Jesus, and as God sovereignly controls and directs the affairs of humanity, we again stand back with the heavenly host and say, Worthy are you, O God. How great and awesome is our God who's able to bring His purposes to pass even in the midst of all of the ugliness we see going on in the world. That He is able to bring His purposes to pass in my life and in your life in spite of the sin and backsliding and, and all the messiness of our lives. We say how awesome is our God when we feel, when we understand God's forgiveness and that though we, are, we feel like the chief of sinners, yet His mercy is more, which we are going to sing in a few moments. That's why these people were filled with awe and wonder. Can you imagine living right on the doorstep of the fulfillment of centuries of prophecy? Of seeing it all unfold before your eyes? To see the Lamb of God who was predicted from the Old Testament there hanging on a cross? Can you imagine what it was like to see the kingdom of God ushered in under Jesus Christ after, after hearing Peter say those words, David is dead and buried among us, but Jesus is risen to the right hand of the Father and He, out of His kingship, has poured out that which you now see and hear. That would have been an, an amazing thing. And so they were filled with awe. And we live in the midst of that ourselves today. With our families, with our children, with our neighbors. We ought, we ought to pray, Lord, if my heart is not filled with awe, please wake up my dead heart. Uh, Brian was mentioning that in his prayer in Cape Traverse this morning that we, we're often so dead. And that's how we know we're in need of revival when our hearts don't match what is going on in the early church here. When we don't have that sense of awe. When the things of the world grip our hearts more than the things of our soul. The things of Jesus. How can we... Things, think so lightly of such a love as this. How can, we, how can we be so nonchalant when it comes to the fact that the Creator of the universe hung naked on a cross to rescue your soul and my soul? 
We can't, friends. We ought to be praying that God would give us that same sense of awe. Secondly, the Spirit was evident in the fact that they had all and all who believed were together. They were a unified people. Now you may say, well, how is that so uh, 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 important or terrific? We need to think of where these people were coming from. They were coming from not only different lands, but different cultures, different languages. And yet they were 3,000 people. They were all together, unified. And they were coming from Rome and North Africa. I mean, we're talking about completely different cultures here, friends. And yet they were all together. And there was, what was the one thing that could help them overcome all of those differences? What's the one thing today that can help us to overcome the ugliness of racism? What's the one thing that can help us to look at our ever-changing island with its different cultures and languages and keep us from turning into bigots and, and prejudiced people and to see people with an eye of love but the gospel of Jesus Christ? And to long that, that this uh, uh, mix of people uh, would also be manifest on our island today in the church. They were unified. They were together. They were of one mind. They weren't in it for power or, 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 or pleasure or anything like that. Quite the contrary. Because they sold what they had. They weren't in it for personal gain. They were selling off what they had so that others could be benefited. And that level of, per, that level of sacrifice did not just extend to monetary things. It was uh, all across the board. One person said, what was the church's strategy? With no buildings, no budget, no program, it was simple. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. It arose out of that sense of, men and brethren, what shall we do? There was a sense of desperation. They didn't need a program. They didn't need a, 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 a budget. They didn't need some kind of uh, church program to uh, direct them or some kind of committee. They simply met. They heard the word. They hungered for the word. They discussed the word. They shared the word. They were unified. And friends, that's where our unity is going to come as well. Let's face it, that in churches over the years, all sorts of things creep in. Ambition, pride, selfishness. How do you guard against those things? Churches break up. Churches split. We've been seeing that over the last few years with COVID. It's taken its toll. And you say, how do people maintain a sense of unity to the degree that the, this early church did? You have to go to the Word. You have to say, whose kingdom is this? It's the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we go there, we take our directions from Him who did not seek His own, but died for the other. And so we take our marching orders there, and in that we find unity. 
So Paul says in Ephesians that the result of this glory, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So they were a people filled with awe. They were a people who were unified. They were a generous people. And it's so interesting that this is what Luke is writing down as he's seeing the early church unfold. Right from the front, as it were. Right? You know those reports. You know, this is so-and-so, and I'm reporting from the Western Front uh, here in the Western Europe, and I'm telling you a blow-by-blow, play-by-play, and said you're describing in, 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 in detail. I was trying to think of that reporter who used to be in the Second World War. His, his son was a CBC reporter, but anyway, somebody can remind me of that later. Uh, he, he, he was reporting directly from the front lines, giving people an eyewitness account of what was going on. Luke is saying, this is how in the early hours of the church as to what it means for the Spirit to be at work in people's lives. Let me show you what's happening right out of the gate. The Word was central. Fellowship was central. Prayer was central. The Lord's Supper was non-negotiable. All of these things were right there. and He's giving an eyewitness account. But what other things were happening? They were filled with awe. They were, there, there was this incredible unity that transcended nationalities. But there was this incredible giving of one's goods, and belongings, and distributing. Uh, uh, they were selling their possessions. They had all things in common, rather. Verse 44. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Well, like I said last week, this is not a, 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 a blueprint for socialism, as many socialists have done. Like Karl Marx, they've gone back and said, ah, the New Testament, uh, if you were a real Christian, you would support socialism because that's the way the church worked. And yet they forget that this even though this is what they were doing, it was also completely voluntary. It was completely voluntary. There's no charter for socialism here. But there is a mandate for what Paul says, let each man give just what he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for the Lord loves a cheerful giver. What what made this so spontaneous? What made this so... Why was this part of the DNA of the early church? Giving. Maybe you could think of other things that, that, that they decided to do. No. Right from the early hours, from the early stages, this is what it looked like. You know, the DNA, it's so small, you can't even see it with the naked eye, but it, it, it contains the building block for the whole body. That's what, it, that's what we see going on here. It's the DNA of the church. And this ought to be our DNA as individuals, as churches. When you look, you see, ah, here's worship. Here's the Word. Here's fellowship. Here is awe. Ah, here is 
uh, uh, unity. Here is generosity. Why was that there? Because they were instinctively responding to God's gift to them. His indescribable gift. That God so loved us, He gave His only begotten Son. Therefore, we will not see any of God's children go without As the Lord added believers to the church, so the Lord adds things to our lives. He adds money to our lives. He adds resources to our lives. Not so that we can spend on ourselves. Not to be like the man who said, my crops have done so well, what will I do? Well, I'll tear down my barns and I'll build bigger barns. Do you see, there was, Jesus was saying there was no thought of God in his response to his prosperity. Rather, that was not the case when the Spirit moved in the early church. Their instinct was to satisfy the physical needs of those around them. What did the church do as it moved in missionary work around the world? They took not only the Scriptures, they took medicine, they took education, they took all of these things, how to dig a clean well for drinking clean water. And so now, when, even when medical missionaries go to different parts of the world, they go uh, uh, with both the word and deed. This again forms the very embryo, uh, embryonic makeup of the, the church. So much so that James could say, don't tell me about your faith unless I see works as well. He wasn't saying that you're saved by works, but he's saying a faith that has no works is not faith at all. These people were showing their faith by their works, weren't they? They were showing that they were really spirit-filled by giving. By being generous with what they have. Think about that yourself. There's always times when we have to practically think uh, on a regular basis about what am I doing? Am I intentional about how I give to the Lord? Am I the kind that just reaches under the couches, couch at home and see what coins are there? And say, oh, guess this is what the church is getting this week. Or, guess I won't be supporting that child overseas. Uh, you know, it's that we need to be more intentional. As Paul said, as the Lord has prospered us, so we give. John says, but if any has the world's goods and see his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? And this is beautifully displayed for us here, that once the Spirit of God was poured out, they instinctively said, they had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing proceeds to all as any had need. Remember when the prodigal son came back, covered with pig manure, rags, and so on? The father looks at him, and he says, Get a robe! Get a ring! Get shoes! This is my son here! He's not a slave, he's not a servant, he's my son! He was dead, and now he's alive! The father couldn't think of things like shame and, you know, family disgrace or anything like that. That wasn't even in his 
thoughts. Clothe him. Love him, not just in word, but in deed. Shower him with the insignia of, of what it means to be part of this family. And that's the way it was with them. How is it with us? Friends, I want to challenge you today to think about how you spend, how you, how you give, not necessarily just to the church, but to the work of God internationally. You don't have to give to everything, but something. You can, be, you can take on a project of your own, something that is uniquely yours, where, that's going to impact the kingdom of God, that's going to relieve the burden of believers around the world. It, again, it's not strictly in monetary terms. It can be giving yourself to praying. Praying for the church. Praying for the suffering church around the world as uh, we were hearing from Tim this morning. That these are practical ways in which we serve uh, the church. So they were giving. John Stott says, it's part of the responsibility of the Spirit-filled, of Spirit-filled believers to alleviate need and abolish destitution in the new community of Jesus. It's a wonderful extension of Jesus' ministry, isn't it? They have no wine. They have no bread. They have no, you know, where are we going to get the food? Where, you know, how are we going to satisfy these people? And now Jesus when He moves in by His Spirit in the New Testament church, all of a sudden there is this willful, not compelled, but willful redistribution of what they have to alleviate the burdens of others. They were worshipful people as well. Day by day attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. This was at the essence of who they were, the essence of why God saved them. It goes back to the children of Israel coming out of Egypt. Let my people go that they might worship me. That's why God sets us free. He sets us free just not to get us out of hell and into heaven. Not just to make our lives easier, but to worship Him. And they were all about that. It says, day by day attending the temple. Day by day attending the temple. It was natural for them to be there in the temple precincts because they were rejoicing in the fulfillment of the temple. They were still, they still considered themselves Jews, but they considered themselves to be a fulfillment of that, that what was going on was now a fulfillment of what the Old Testament had said. And that filled them with a sense of worship. And lastly, they were an evangelistic people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So as the Christians were going about doing these things, I mean, you can imagine the stir. 3,000 people filled with God's Spirit. 
Their world's completely turned upside down because the scriptures that they thought they knew were now completely fulfilled and they were in the temple. They weren't off in some field somewhere outside Jerusalem. They were in the temple. They were still enjoying favor with, with the people. So things were still pretty good. So they were in the temple and they were just singing and praising and they couldn't believe it. And through that witness, people were coming in under the Lord's leading. The New Testament, the book of Acts, often talks about the evangelizing work of people like Paul and Silas. Speaking to people like Lydia, and yet at the end of the day it says God opened her heart to understand what Paul and Silas were saying. Because salvation is of the Lord. It's the Lord that is adding people unto the church. To be a church member is to be saved. Is to be born again. To, to know the Lord Jesus Christ in your heart. And note that word saved. That's such an important word. Those who are being saved. It doesn't say those who are being enlightened or educated. Or made to feel good about themselves? The Lord added those who are being saved. Saved from what? Saved from the wrath of God. Saved from the very thing that caused Jesus to hang on the cross and have nails driven into His hands, a crown of thorns, to be whipped and scourged and forsaken by His Father. Friends, that is the fruit of our sin. That's the fruit of your life right there. That's what God thinks of it. Not only your outward actions, but your heart as well. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. We can fool other people, but we can't fool God. He wants your heart. And if your heart is full of unbelief and sin and iniquity, He sees that. And you need to be saved from that. And that's again why these people were bouncing off the walls. Because they were saved. They were redeemed. They were brought into the household of God. They were part of God's kingdom. They had been delivered out of the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of the Son of God, of Jesus. God added to their number those who were being saved. We all need to be saved. Peter needed to be saved. John needed to be saved. The 3,000 needed to be saved. And they were. You need to be saved. I need to be saved. Because of who God is. They were filled with awe and wonder. They were cut to the heart. What shall we do? What will become of us? What will become of me? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and we shall be saved. That's, what, that's the answer to the Scriptures. Have you done it? Are you doing it? Will you do it? We must go to the Lord then. If you, if you find, if it's the Lord that adds to His church, then it's to the Lord we must go. If you say to me, you know, these things are, are so boring and dead and I have no appetite for them and no time for them. And, uh, you know, I just go to church because that's the thing to do. And 
look, you must go to God. The Spirit of God is at the center, at the heart of everything that's going on here. It's at the heart of every conversion, every, every song, every, uh, everything that is cherished, every dime that is given. The Spirit of God is at the center of it. And it is to Him then you must go and plead with the Spirit of God, open my eyes, and I may behold the beauty of Jesus, the beauty of the King. Help me to see Him. So this is a, a, a beautiful picture for us, friends, in terms of what we are to be as those who also, through our lives and through our witness, God would use that to build up His church, to add to the church, to grow the church. And that all these things might be characteristic of us. And that if they are not, that we go to the Lord and say, Lord, how is it with me? How is it with me this morning? Do I reflect the heart of these people? Oh Lord, I want the heart of these people. I don't want to be living a life of mediocrity. I want to be soaring with the eagles and soaring in the clouds with the early church. Lord, You've given this not as a, as, as a pie in the sky thing to grasp, but as a blueprint for living today. May I know that devotion, that awe, that generosity, that unity. And out of this, may the church of Jesus Christ grow and may God be glorified. Let us pray.